This episode is brought to you by Greg Morris Cards, one of the largest sports card sellers on the planet. Greg sells over 80,000 vintage and modern cards every month, including basketball, football, baseball, hockey, all sports really, and even some non-sports cards too. On top of that, every raw card receives the same hand grading that collectors have put their trust in for over 15 years. What are you waiting for? Head on over to gregmorriscards.com auctions and check it out for yourself. What's up, everyone? This is episode 202 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle, and as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast, and my Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. All right, so a lot of you listen to episode 200 where I went back through some of the show's history, including all the work I've done with high-end RPAs. And all along the way, you guys have been sending me pictures of RPAs whenever you see them in auctions or social media or wherever. So just know that I appreciate that. And um, sometime around the end of last week, I received a picture of another one. Super Dan from the Blowout Forum sent me a link to an Anthony Davis uh, National Treasures RPA on my slabs. And it was in a PSA authentic slab. Now, truth be told, I didn't spend a lot of time with this link when he first sent it because it was a basic nameplate patch that matched up with a couple pictures I already had. And I told him that. But he told me, no, you need to look closer at the patch. Look at the material. It looks like someone's been tugging at that patch piece. And sure enough, after I superimposed it over previous pictures I had, I saw that the patch piece had moved. And really, there's a lot of evidence on the piece overall that someone has been tampering with it. There are areas that are frayed. There are areas where the cloth is elevated. And all of that goes along with the patch placement changing ever so slightly. So, presumably, this is a botched alteration. It's even possible that whoever did this swapped the patch successfully, um, saw that these were being tracked, and got scared and put the original back in. We've seen that before with the Donovan Mitchell RPA. And all of this is a little puzzling to me, for a different reason than you might think, though. In the past, we've seen some PSA slabbed cards with obvious altered patches, but because there's no physical evidence of alterations on the card itself, they slab it as they would any other card. This card, on the other hand, even from pictures online, so even without seeing it in person, it has very distinct evidence of tampering. And this isn't just an opinion. Things have physically changed on the card. This should be a slam dunk for PSA because all of this is observable. This is a scientific approach. And my guess is instead of reviewing the card as thoroughly as they should, PSA probably just looked at my RPA tracker to confirm the original patch was the same style of patch because that um, swapping the patches themselves has been the big issue. And by the way, I've had multiple PSA employees confirm to me that they do use the tracker, and that lines up with what I see on my Google Analytics, because of all the cities in the world, the city that frequents my site the most is Santa Ana. Well, guess what company is there? But that's fine. I'm glad they're using whatever information's at their disposal. That's what I pleaded with them to do for the longest time. Remember all that stuff with Steve Sloan? 
I was begging them to use it. So they are now. That's good. The problem is, it seems like they neglected to do the one thing that my tracker can't do for them, which is to look at that card in hand and observe it closely. What happened to Genement? You know, that was supposed to be their AI technology that can look at the card and detect those alterations and the physical changes on the card. Is that still a thing? My guess is they didn't do all that. They didn't put the card through all those processes because they were only asked to authenticate this one as opposed to giving it a numerical grade. That's why it's in that PSA authentic holder. So this past weekend, the new president of PSA was on the crossover and he was talking about the desire for more transparency from their end of things and bringing people behind the curtain a little bit. I will say, I think appearances like that are a good start. So uh, hopefully they can utilize the crossover for that more in the future. And I've said this before, I think the current regime has done a better job about allowing dialogue on some of these issues than previous leadership, although uh, honestly that's a really low bar. I should also remind you, as I discussed in episode 185, the last time I had dialogue with PSA, they tried to pass the onus on to someone else for a mistake they were involved in. And I understand that mistakes are going to be made. That happens. I don't need a hundred messages about that tomorrow. But shifting the blame to someone else, that has got to stop. Own up to your mistakes and bear the consequences. So this Anthony Davis situation here, I've not seen any remarks from them on it yet. This would be a great place to start. What's your policy now on cards that have obviously been tampered with? What happens when you find out you slabbed an altered card after the fact? Are buyers that trusted that PSA guarantee and, and ended up with damaged goods, are they just going to get left holding the bag? These are all questions that I would love to see answered in the near future. Okay, enough about PSA. Today I want to spend a significant amount of time catching up on recent mail, including a couple of trade packages I'm going to save till the end. That way I can share a few thoughts about trading as well, so you'll want to make sure to stay tuned for that. But first, I want to talk about just some good old regular purchases, including, of, of all things, a $2 Hoops card. And I suppose that's fitting this week, seeing as uh, Hoops came out, you know, it's supposed to come out on the 11th. It came out, you could see it a little earlier on eBay, um, which I actually am very excited about this year's release. I want to get some new cards. It's time, right? So I'm happy about that. The card I ordered, however, was from a decade ago. It was from a... Uh, I'm sorry, it was a 2012-2013 Hoops Taco Bell card of Glenn Davis. Yes, that's right. Taco Bell has had Hoops branded cards on several occasions. I think they've come up on the show before. But their 2012-2013 Hoops set was their biggest foray into the basketball card world by far. And these were distributed in kids' meals in five-card packs. And this wasn't the exact same as the regular Hoops set, though, because this one had 150 cards whereas the regular set had 300. Also, the corners were rounded, so they're very easy to tell the difference between. And uh, then a lot of the rookies and, and some of the traded players and, and then some random veterans as well had different photos. I think pretty much all the star photos are the same, though, because I know Curry and LeBron are for sure. So you might be asking, of all players, why did I buy Glenn Davis? Well, he was one of those photo variations. And going off of this kick that I've been on recently... I discovered that his Taco Bell version featured a photo from a Pacers Magic playoff game I went to in 2012. And as I've said before, I'm building a couple binder pages full of those cards. So this one 
definitely had to be added. And before I move on, I want to mention real quick, after I ordered that card, a listener named Jeremy sent me a package that had all the pacers from that set, among other things, which I actually still needed. And I hadn't mentioned the Davis purchase to him, so it's funny how that works. So thank you, Jeremy, once again for that. Um, Okay, the next card was an eBay purchase that came from overseas. So I ordered it sometime late last year. It's a 2020-2021 Panini Immaculate Jersey Numbers Jumbo Patch of Sean Kemp, numbered 11 of 12. And while I have nothing against Sean Kemp, I wouldn't normally be shopping for his cards. This one really jumped out at me, though, because it was not a typical Sonics uniform. In fact, it wasn't a Sonics uniform at all. Instead, this featured a giant piece of a purple and green number four with a white jersey, right? So if you're thinking about that, okay, what could that be from? Well, it's from the 1995 All-Star Game. And even though Panini didn't put that anywhere on the card, you can go through all the All-Star Games he played in and narrow that one down to 1995 because those patch pieces look significantly different. Now, I wish that Panini had pictured him in the same jersey on that card, I think they do have an all-star photo on there, but it was one of the years where they wore their regular team jerseys, so had to have been a couple years later. But either way, this patch piece is the focal point of this card, and it's incredible. And aside from the Jordan and Clyde Drexler, I haven't seen any other all-star jerseys from that time frame cut up and put into cards. Remember, we're talking 90s here. So I knew this was one I wanted to add, and I'm glad that I did. But that's not the biggest uh, card in this first batch that I'm going to talk about. There's one card left, and I think it deserves the title of a grail card. That's why I almost said that's not the biggest grail. Well, the Sean Kemp wasn't a grail. This one is a grail. It's definitely going to make it into my updated top 50, and it will probably be pretty high. It's a 2012-2013 Prism Gold of Danny Granger, numbered 5 out of 10, and it is a PSA 10 a pop one. Now, as someone who buys the card and not the grade, I have to confess, adding that last little PSA 10 part on there, it did feel pretty good. So I guess I understand in some cases why people would really lean on that. Um, Although truth be told, I probably would have paid just as much for an eight or a nine, because when you're looking for a card of this caliber, you can't be too picky about condition, especially if if visually it looks the same. Uh, And I'm pretty sure I bid, you know, whatever I paid for this, I bid a similar amount for a PSA 9 last year and lost. But as you guys know, prices are coming down. A lot of stuff is becoming available. And I'm happy to grab some of it on the way down. It's still not at the 2018 price, but neither was a lot of the stuff I moved the last couple years either. So it all evens out. And as I was plugging the cert number in to look at the pop report that I mentioned earlier, I noticed there was a really nice, high-quality scan of my card on the PSA site. And, um, you know, I know I talked about PSA and some of the big changes they could make in today's intro. One change they have made, and, and one I think that the president even mentioned on that crossover appearance, was imaging every card on the way out. If it wasn't him, I know Nats mentioned it in some of his tweets lately. I know some people love the process of photographing their cards, I'm more of a scanning guy, and my scanner does not do well with those graded cards. So having that photo there already is a major plus for me. If I want to, I can just save it to my computer and upload it to Flickr instead of trying to image all that myself. So that was nice. And in looking at the Pacers in the 2012 Prism set, I think we could all say Paul George is, is, you know, the most expensive one. He's the most valuable one. But to me, Danny Granger is the most important. 
And I know I've been on, you know, in the past, I've been on an anti-Paul George kick. I've kind of reconciled that. So this is not meant to be any sort of slight at Paul George. But as I've said before, Danny was a very important link between a couple of really good Pacers squads. He was drafted the season after Reggie Miller retired, and he carried a lot of the scoring load up uh, until injuries slowed him down, which was also around the same time the Pacers drafted Paul uh, Paul George and he emerged. And I know there were a lot of fans that were disappointed that Danny wasn't quite the alpha they wanted him to be, which was goofy because he was still really good. There were even a couple years where he averaged nearly 25 points per game. And yes, that's when scoring was down a little bit, at least relative to now. I just wanted to be known that I appreciate the role he played on those tough transition years. It wasn't an easy role. And it's a shame he wasn't healthy a little later on. And then, of course, they ended up trading him for Evan Turner, and the whole thing kind of imploded from there. I would even go as far to say, though, that I wish the Pacers would retire his number. And some of you might be fans of franchises where they retire a lot of numbers. They're you know, pretty loose with that. Uh, those of you, though, that know your Pacers history know that retiring Danny Granger would be a pretty big deal. And this is kind of a hot take, because every number in the rafters is in the Hall of Fame. They don't just give banners to players that were very good. So I mentioned Paul George. He won't get one. I can say that um, pretty confidently. Jermaine O'Neal doesn't have one and probably never will. And and we're talking about a guy that was third in MVP voting in uh, 03-04, I think. So I doubt Danny gets one either. But when it comes to a player's overall importance to the franchise, I'd love to see a big number 33 in the rafters whenever Miles Turner is done wearing it, of course, which hopefully is is not for a long time. I hope he re-signs with the Pacers. But um, Danny's number being up there, look, it's probably not going to happen, and I understand that. In the meantime, however, I will continue to tell his story through the cards in my PC. And for those of you who chase a particular player or team, you guys know that the 2012 Prism Gold is a big one to knock off the list. So I'm still kind of soaking that one in. And uh, I've been holding off on posting it. I've had it for a little while, but I wanted to talk about it first. So Now I'll make sure to get that one up on my social media if I haven't done so already. All right, before I recap a couple recent trades, I want to take a moment to remind you how you can support this show. As you guys know, there are costs that go into producing a podcast. One of my goals is to always keep the show itself free. As a result, I've signed up for affiliate programs with eBay and Fanatics. If you'd like to help support the show in this way, go to www.fanatics.com waxmuseumpodcast.com. Click whatever store you need to go to, shop as planned, and the show gets a small commission in the process. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. Hustle, grind, spam, profit. We're the Whip Gods. You're listening to the Wax Museum Podcast. Okay, so as I mentioned earlier, I made a couple trades in the last couple weeks, and I don't trade very often, so I want to talk about those trades and mix in some general thoughts about the process along the way. And the first trade is one that I really wasn't even seeking out, but as you'll see, it kind of fell into place here at the end. Sometime around late November or early December, I had a collector reach out to me via email asking to do a voice chat to talk about some of my extra signed 72 tops. And I don't, I mean, I I have jumped on a voice chat from time to time with with collectors I don't know. It's not a regular habit of mine, but in this case it made sense because we could kind of speed things up a little bit. We didn't make the trade on the phone though, that came later on. Um, 
So he wanted some signed 72 tops. And remember, these are, are duplicates. Um, I, I collected that whole set. I probably had 40 or 50 duplicates. And, and at the time that I collected all of those, it really wasn't worth it to aggressively move them. So I just put them in a box and let them be. I thought, you know, maybe they'll go up in value in the future and they'll be worth moving. Or maybe an opportunity will come up. You know, who knows? So this collector reached out and it, it was a really hectic time with work and the holidays and everything. So I said, hey, shoot me a message in another week or two. And, and that probably happened a couple times because you know how hectic things get around that time. It's, it's like, you know, I'm not going to force this conversation to happen until it's a, it's a good time for it. So um, that good time was when I was in the car for four hours on the way back from Miami. Uh, we didn't chat that long, though. But uh, after going through some stuff at the house when I got back, I had 10 cards that he wanted. And as far as I knew, he only had vintage to offer me in return. So I was thinking about just asking for cash, like, hey, you know, these have gone up in value. I could use the cash right now. There's a lot of stuff coming to market. You know, that seemed logical to me. But then he started messaging me pictures of Reggie Miller cards and nice ones, which really got my attention because I've been trying to upgrade my Reggie Miller PC a little as of late, you know, go back and get some of those things that either I couldn't afford in the past or that didn't appeal to me as much, like the refractors, the autographs, that kind of thing. And he showed me those cards. We went back and forth over text a number of times. There really weren't good comps for either his cards or my cards at the time. Not a lot of recent sales. And you might have heard me refer to this before as the productive struggle. Well, at some point you have to cut it off. So we, we did a couple offers back and forth. I listened to where he was at, but I said, you know, look, this is where I'm at. Either it happens or it doesn't. Because like I said, I wasn't in a hurry to move this 72 stuff. Um, he wanted it for his sets. So I said, look, if you want it, here's where I'm at. Um, and we ended up making a deal. And we both walked away with some cards that are more in line with where each of us is going with our PC. So I already mentioned that I gave up 10. I'm not going to go through all the names. They, some of them were more obscure guys anyway. But on my end, I received a, um, a trio of cards. I received a 2004-2005 Upper Deck SPX Winning Materials Relic Auto number to 100 which in past years didn't appeal to me as much because it wasn't a patch. And, and my tastes have changed, especially for that era. I'm just really nostalgic for stuff from that 0304 era with the Pacers. And then um, in addition to that, I received a pair of refractors. One of them was a real low-end refractor I needed for my binder. The other one was Reggie's 2001-2000, I'm sorry, 2000-2001 Topps Finest Gold number 200, which looks really nice in my gold binder. So I'll try and get a picture of that up. And, um, you know, that trade for me really reinforced the idea that sometimes you need to pursue opportunities that you aren't super excited about. And this is not against the, the trader itself. It's just I knew the work that was going to have to go into that between having the call and digging that box out and sorting everything. And I just knew that my time at the moment really, really wasn't conducive to that. But anyway, I made the time. I made it happen. Um... And, you know, I pursued that opportunity and little did I know there were some very nice Reggie Miller cards waiting for me on the other side. And, and I wouldn't have known had I not pursued that opportunity that was in front of me. Okay, before I talk about trade number two and, and share some final thoughts, I want to tell you a little bit about one of my favorite hobby websites. Check out my cards. ComC.com is your home for buying, selling, and flipping all types of trading cards. Their consignment marketplace is home to over 28 million cards across all sports, genres, and eras. With a ComC.com account, 
You can purchase cards from different sellers and ship them home together later, or immediately reprice them for sale on the ComC Marketplace. For more info, you can check them out on social media under the handle at CheckOutMyCards. Okay, so the second trade that I want to talk about today, some of you have actually watched, and I know that's not normal, but um, I've talked about this a little bit on the show, and I didn't go into specifics though, but um, I was chatting with Josh, aka Mitten State Collector, about some of my Pistons cards, and he responded with a Ben Wallace card that I really wanted. Before we got too far into the possibility of a trade, I floated the idea of recording the trade because that's the kind of content I want to see, but I haven't seen much of it aside from stuff at card shows, and then I know the Pact of the Future guys kind of did a trade scenario on their show too, but I just wanted to see two guys sitting down with cards trying to work something out. Um, So Josh was very receptive to that, so I want to thank him again, and I even told him at the start, you know, hey, if at any point you feel uncomfortable with this, this video never goes out. But he was completely fine with it, and I think it did a pretty good job of, of, once again, conveying that productive struggle. And it's funny, at one point in that struggle, we were kind of at a crossroads because of, of all things, a Vinnie Johnson patch card. We both really liked it, probably more than we should have. And we had to take a quick break because I'm, I'm using free Zoom, and our time limit ran out for a little bit. So um, that worked out, though, because we probably needed to step away for a few minutes to process what was going on instead of doing that uh, in in with each other present and that that awkward silence right we had enough of that as it is so while all of this was happening and uh, that first video was processing I thought to myself yeah this Vinnie Johnson card is nice but it shouldn't be a barrier between us getting this deal done and I pretty much said that to him when we came back on or at least that's how I remember it I think we would have finished the deal there but Josh dug out more cards I wanted that weren't on the table before, so that was another good reason to take a break. So we had to reconfigure things a little bit, but um, real quick, here's what transpired. And I I know I'm about to rattle off a a big list of cards, so just hang in there. But I traded him the following cards. That Vinnie Johnson patch numbered to 25, a UD Black Pacers Pistons quad numbered to 10, a Ben Wallace Antonio McDice dual patch numbered to 99, although the Ben Wallace was a a tag from the 03 All-Star Game, a Ben Wallace patch numbered to, I think, either 50 or 75, a 2008 Rashid Wallace Topps Chrome Gold Refractor, a Rashid Wallace Black Diamond Final Cut Parallel numbered to 100, a Ben Wallace Topps Total Printing Plate 101, and a Tayshawn Prince Upper Deck patch numbered 101. And that was all just one side, so this was a complicated trade. I know, you know, not the highest dollar trade necessarily, although it's probably the biggest one that I've made or one of the bigger ones I've made, um, but just a lot of pieces involved. So what did I get in return? I got a Ray Allen patch number to 50 for a set that I'm I'm kind of working on, kind of not. A Jason Richardson patch to 75, that was kind of to even things out. A Ben Wallace 2006 Fleer Ultra Platinum Medallion numbered to 100. A Ben Wallace Brandon Wright dual tag number to 10, and, and the Wallace on that one's from the 06 All-Star Game, which I thought was cool. A Chris Kamen Topps nameplate 101, and then the card I really wanted, a Topps Big Game nameplate 101 of Ben Wallace from that that era that I love so much. So, um, like I said, I know I just rattled off a ton of cards there. I'll have to do a visual recap on social media, or you can watch the full trade, all 44 minutes of it on YouTube, if that's your sort of thing. 
And when Josh and I finished this trade, and, and speaking of that video, you could this this part's on that video. I asked him something to the effect of, you know, are you happy with your side of things, or are you happy with the way turns out things turned out? And there was a pretty lengthy pause. And while he wasn't saying anything in that moment, I feel like I kind of understood exactly what was being said because we expended a lot of energy on that transaction. Um, even though, you know, on film it was 44 minutes, setting things up, setting the cards up, setting the camera up. You know, there was probably an hour and a half on each end that went into this thing of prep. And there was quite a bit of stress. And at the end of it all, we both then had to face the realization that we had to part with pieces that we both really liked. And, you know, that's fine. Obviously, everything worth having comes at a cost. So that's kind of how I interpreted that long pause. I didn't worry too much about it. Just based on my own experiences, I, I had a feeling that those were the feelings and thoughts going through his head. And I think that was a correct interpretation because afterwards, uh, when Josh received his end of the deal, he sent me a message that read as follows. He said, I don't know about you, but I always feel on the fence about any trades I make until I get the cards in hand. Seeing them together really is one of the best feelings in the hobby for me. And when he wrote that, I immediately thought back to the trade that I made with Vintage Pacers last summer where... I traded him a couple real nice Danny Grangers for a Pacers triple auto that I had been wanting for years. And there was a part of me that said, you know, and I know I've talked about it on this show before, but man, these Danny Grangers are really nice. When we finally met up though and made the deal, I didn't regret it at all. I really liked the card I got in return. In fact, it ended up being number seven on my top 50 list. And even after I restructure things, I, I think it will still be in my top 10. So all of that is to say, I've had a couple really good trading experiences as of late. I haven't traded a lot in the past, especially, you know, elaborate multi-card trades done through the mail. So this was a nice change of pace. You might remember my conversation with Carter from last week where I told him I'd like to pursue more trades in 2023, but I want to make sure they're purposeful. I don't want to trade just to trade or just for the dopamine rush of getting a nice package in the mail, although that is a nice little bonus. And I've had a number of people reach out to me about that conversation with Carter. I've been making goals in some capacity for well over 20 years now, but I still learned a lot from Carter just in that one little segment. And I told him I wanted to make more trades, and he encouraged me to flesh that out a little bit more. So for the time being, I came up with three things, and I don't think they're, they're perfect goals to have around trading, but maybe some things that I can flesh out even more as I go throughout the year and get a better idea of what I want. So here's what I came up with. Number one, I think I want to trade a little bit to move on from some stuff that's been sitting in my boxes for a long time. And that's not necessarily, you know, my favorite PC cards. I know there's some cards that some of you might be thinking, oh, I'm going to ask them about that immediately. Um, you know, not stuff that's in my my main collection, but maybe some of that side stuff, right? Like these 72 um, top 72 duplicates were a good example of that. Number two, I want to trade more so I can get to know other collectors a little better. Um, now, it still has to work out for both sides as far as the, the assets being shared, but um, maybe this was either Josh or Carter that floated the idea to me, but I can say for a fact that I feel like I have a stronger friendship with Josh now that we've been through this process together. And there's no need to try and do this hobby alone. I've said that many times on this show before. And then finally, number three, I want to try and trade into some nice PC cards that wouldn't otherwise be for sale. And maybe having that conversation with someone 
you know, convince them to show a part of their collection that people don't know about. So sometimes this hobby can be a bit of an arms race. You know, of course, instead of amassing superior weaponry, we're amassing nice cards. And with some collectors, the only way to pry those out of the PC is with other nice cards. So I think I have some of the weaponry to make that happen now. Uh, at least I'm, I'm thinking about it and, and thinking where I could go with that. All right, well, there you have it. There are a lot more thoughts about trading spinning around in my head right now. Just haven't been able to process all of them yet. Maybe you've really embraced trading and you have some thoughts you want to contribute. Feel free to reach out to me on social media. You can find me on Instagram under the handle at Wax Museum Podcast or on Twitter under the handle at Wax Museum PC. If you enjoyed this episode, I encourage you to support the show by doing all of your eBay purchasing through the link on my site, which is www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. There's a big eBay logo at the top. Click that, and it should give me a small percentage of whatever you purchase in the 24 hours that follow. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store. Tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast. <laughs>